Our New Testament reading this morning will be in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you'll open there with me. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're starting a new section in 1 Peter where he speaks of our suffering as Christians. Uh, we'll start our reading at cha uh, chapter 4, verse 12. And we'll read the remainder of chapter 4. So, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if someone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. For it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. As you read through the New Testament, you find how at odds Scripture is with the desire of man. I have heard so often, become a Christian and life will be better for you. Become a Christian and God will bless you and all will go according to your desire. But we read in Scripture over and over again that same call. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial of the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. you know, troubles and trials are part of this life. And it's a difficult matter for us as Christians to, to deal with them, to endure them, to understand them. Now, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, there's none good but one. There's part of the answer. But Peter is in this entire book dealing with the life of the Christian, his suffering, his trials, his troubles, in a world which is completely ungodly and which will persecute and hate him. And these words contain something depressing for the one who's focused on the world, who doesn't want what God wants, but wants their own comfort, their own joy, their own peace, their own things. But to those who know God, to those who have turned their heart to him and given themselves to him and live for him, there are great words of encouragement in here as well. So we will look at that passage this morning, but first let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider our suffering as Christians, our suffering according to your will, that you would help us to understand these things and to find the joy in them, 
that you have called us to have and to be able to bear up under them and glorify you and live for the coming age. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, a long time ago, long, long time ago, we looked at James chapter 1, and he also spoke of our trials. And we mentioned a few of the kinds of trials that we face as Christians. And we looked at some biblical examples of them. And I want to remind us of those. Job's trial. Job's trial came upon him to show Satan his folly. And it was God testing him. We saw God test Abraham's faith. Having him sacrifice Isaac, his son, and only heir. We see the persecution for the faith of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 especially. They're beaten, they're flogged, they're threatened with death. Peter's readers in this book are facing persecution regularly. And soon to come, Nero will unleash a horrific persecution on the Christian church. We also see sickness. Job had his sickness. Paul, his thorn in the flesh. Many suffer with illnesses, cancer, illnesses of age, and the difficulties that come with it, and even the sicknesses that rampage through even the young. We see poverty and want troubles us and tempts us, and riches. People don't always think of riches as a trial, but the temptation when we become rich is serious. Proverbs 38 and 9. Give me neither riches nor poverty. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. You remember in the Lord's Prayer, Give us this day our daily bread. You know, riches can be a, quite a trial. Keeping them, growing them, worrying about them and, of course, misusing them. But there are many trials mentioned, and he tells us here, verse 12, do not be surprised, as if something strange had come upon you. When we suffer all of those things, we should understand that Peter is saying, when these things come upon you. He does not say if. There is the assumption in Peter's writing that you will be persecuted. And of course, we see that in uh, Paul's writing as, as well. Second Peter, Peter three, yeah, Second Timothy three, twelve to thirteen. All who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, it is not a strange thing that we suffer trials and persecution in our life. They're they're really to be expected in the Christian life. Everyone suffers the miseries of this world. We suffer sickness, we suffer injury, we suffer toiling under the sun because the earth is cursed. We suffer the effects of having to live with cursed and wicked people who hate God and refuse to live a right life. We suffer crime, abuse, violence, even accidents and trouble coming because they behave recklessly. Uh, but especially in this passage, Christians suffering for the name of Christ. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. 
so we will suffer for his name. Jesus said in Luke 21, 17 through 19, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head shall perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So we will be hated by everyone for the name of Christ. Why? Well, because Christ is the judge. Christ is the one who will cast them into hell. Christ is the one who tells them what they're doing is wrong. Christ is the one who says, that's sin. Stop. I remember my father, when I was witnessing to him, told me my God was the God of hate because he hates sin. Well, if my God is the God of hate because he hates sin and I am his child, they will hate me as well. And so we shouldn't consider this to be something strange, something unusual. These trials that come upon us, these troubles, are not strange. And the persecution is especially at mind here, and Jesus warned his disciples about that in John 15, 20 and 21. Remember the word that I said to you, your servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do on the account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Because they reject God the Father, they will hate the Son, and because we speak of the Son's name and we are called by his name, Christians, we will be persecuted just as he was persecuted. It's a difficult thing, but if we deny his name, he will deny us. And so we should remember that this is just part of what it means to be a Christian. Everything has its um, pluses and minuses. That's why he says, who goes to war with his enemy and does not count to see whether he has enough troops to overcome the enemy? Who builds a tower and doesn't check to make sure he has enough money to finish it? You know, part of the cost of Christian living is that if we name Christ, we will be hated as he was hated. Of course, these trials, they can be difficult for us. I love the way James puts it when we looked at James chapter 1, verse 2, years, a year, two years ago, almost. It said, Count and enjoy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The meat there is to <laughs> fall into the hands of trials. The same word used in the story of the Good Samaritan. The victim fell among thieves. You know, the idea is they, they, they come upon you, they overwhelm you quickly. They take control of the situation. They're a shock. They're not good. But that's kind of the way a trial is. But he says, don't be surprised. It's not something that surprises you because it is a normal part of the Christian life. People who delude themselves and think that, oh, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life and he'll make me happy and everything, give me everything I desire and protect me from all harm and wrong. Those people are surprised. Those who have read the Bible and heard this repeated call to suffer for Christ know that that's not the case and they are not surprised. It may come upon them suddenly, but sorrows and trials and difficulties are not a surprise to God's people. They are really part of God's purpose and God's plan for our life. They're not outside of his will. Verse 19 tells us that. 
Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to their faithful creator while doing good. Certainly we know all things happen according to God's will. He works everything out. Ephesians chapter 111. He, we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We know that he works all things out to the counsel of his will, but the suffering here specifically is not the all things, but the call to suffer for the name of Christ. Now that may be in sickness, as we have an opportunity then to witness. You know, the person suffering and dying of cancer could be a witness to those who are treating them, a witness to those who are also suffering, a witness to everyone who suffers, not just with cancer or whatever the disease may be. You know, it's an opportunity to serve God through the suffering, just as Job had an opportunity to serve and glorify God through his suffering, and as he did. God does assign some people to suffer for his kingdom, for his glory, and, but it's always for their good. Remember Romans 8, 8, God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even our suffering ultimately will work out for our good. And if we have that in mind, then the suffering can be a joy. And we are called to rejoice when we suffer for the name of Christ because it will work out for our good. You know, we think of Job as one of the most amazing stories of that, but in all our suffering, we can glorify God. And how we live, how we, how we hope, you know, being ready to give that reason for the hope that is in you. Oh, you have an incurable disease. You're going to waste away for the rest of your life and not be able to take care of your family and not be able to do the things you want to do. Why are you still joyful? Because I have Christ, I have salvation, I have heaven. That's why. It's that opportunity to tell. They are normal, but why do we have them? Well, we've mentioned a little bit about glorifying God. That's what we do in all things, though, not just in our trials. But one of the purposes mentioned here is for testing. Verse 12. Uh, starting off, though, he... In my translation, it says, when fiery trials come upon you. Fiery trials, there is a word that, a single word, that has to do with the smelting of metals. Now, if you remember the process of smelting metal, you take the ore, you heat it up, the metal melts, um, the things that are flammable will burn off, the things that are not flammable will separate, and they heat it at different temperatures, and they can scoop off some of the, the, the waste product, the stuff that needs to be removed as they refine it, be it silver or gold. You know, it's mixed with many other things. And they repeat that process over and over again. You know, today they use acids to dissolve it and chemicals to process it and electrolysis to get it out again. Uh, in the old days, they heated it, burned off the crud, got it to the right temperature, scraped off what didn't belong, and then they would start over again and do it again and do it again and do it again to purify more and more and more and more. And figuratively speaking, this word is often used of those trials that refine. 
The idea being that from a spiritual standpoint, it's a, a testing and a trial to separate us from the things that are no good. Uh, <clears throat> there's a uh, Psalm 12, verse 6, says that the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And so his words are like they've been purified seven times. And we in our life are in the process of being refined and purified over and over again as he burns off the crud, scrapes off the trash, and we remain pure. And so these tests, these trials, have that purpose in our life, like the pruning of the waste, the branches that produce no good, and the pruning to get the branches that are producing to produce more, well, another illustration of the same concept here is this refining by fire that he mentions. Now, the second word he uses have to do with a test. He says, these fiery trials come upon you to test you. The test there is the same one as in uh, James chapter 1, verse 2. And it has to do with the putting to proof by test. How does a fiery trial do that? Well, you put the metal in and you heat it up and you melt it, and if you see a lot of stuff burning off, you know it's not pure. If you get it to the right temperature and you see there are two different metals in there, you know it's not pure. Uh, these trials in our life test us spiritually. When you're facing hardship, what do you do? Job's wife says, curse God and die. Now that's very extreme. But what do we do? Do we grumble against God? Oh, God, you brought us out into the desert to die of starvation. You brought us into the desert to die of thirst. If only we were stayed in Egypt where our pots were full of meat. You know, do we grumble against God? Do we get angry with others? Do we blame people? Do we cry out, whoa, why, is, why me? It's a test, a trial. And we can see in that furnace, as we're heated up, how pure we are. And so, in that sense, it is a good thing and a good purpose. Helps us to see where we are. It helps us to see where we need to go and what we need to become. Just as the baby bird tries its wings, the same word, to, to prepare to fly. It's not just a test to see whether it's ready, but it's also an exercise to make itself ready. Ships taken out and given their sea trial. You know, it's not like if they fail their sea trial, they get thrown away. No, they get taken back to port, fixed, improved, and tested again. And that's our spiritual life in Christ. We face a trial. We see where we fall short. We see where we stumble. Or others see for us and tell us. <laughs> and we, tr we try to make corrections in Christ so that the next time the trial comes, we don't stumble. And so these trials form a purpose, refining us, purifying us, preparing us to glorify God more and more. And so they're not meaningless, but they're, they're a form of improvement. And in verses 13 and 14, he brings out another point of another purpose that we suffer 
as a Christian for the name of Christ. But notice that we have a share in Christ's suffering. Now, what does it mean that we share in Christ's suffering? It does not mean that we make partial atonement for ourselves. We're not suffering as he suffered on the cross. Uh, Peter has talked about this earlier in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Remember the point I made about that? The resurrection showed that all the sins of his people were paid in full. Death no longer had a hold on him because he had no sin, and he raised. And that is our hope, that because he lives again, we know our sins are paid in full. Uh, not purgatory as the Roman Catholic Church mistakenly thinks that you know, Jesus paid part, and we suffer the rest in purgatory if we're not good enough now. Not what's in mind here. Jesus paid it all. He was raised, as we read before, for our justification. Uh, Romans 4.25 And since he was raised, we know that we are justified. Our sins are fully paid for. What is he talking about here then? Well, Jesus explains it in Matthew 10.24 and 25. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So what is Jesus saying? If we are like him, then that is our purpose, right? To be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. If we are like him and he was hated and persecuted, so we the more we are like him, the more we will be hated and persecuted. And so we share in his sufferings and that we suffer as he suffered because we are identified as being with him. And this is a matter of great joy for us. I'm suffering because I look like Christ. If I don't look like Christ, will people bother me? <laughs> no, no, no. Where's the Christian? I don't see one here pass on and persecute someone else. Now, the more we, we are in his image, transformed into his image, the more of an offense we are to those who hate him. And so we, the church and the believer, share his sufferings because we share his name and we share that image more and more. A cause of joy in our lives and we do suffer this for the name of Jesus. Remember in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God has exalted him highly and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Because we have that name that is above every name associated with us, all of his enemies, become our enemies. All those who want to hurt him see us and want to hurt us because we're reachable. We can be attacked. We can be harmed. We can be made to suffer. We can be humiliated because he is in heaven and he is too powerful. They cannot reach him. 
And so in that way, we suffer for his name and we are sharing in his sufferings. So that is one, one other purpose. A third purpose given in this passage we see in 17 and 18, and that is judgment. That judgment begins at the household of God, but it continues to the wicked. Now, we need to remember that this, the suffering, the persecution we suffer, we already read that the wicked go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Psalm 73 really calls us to understand what we're meaning, what our problem is here. The first three verses, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, we see them going from bad to worse. We see their happiness, their joy, their wealth. Uh, getting what they want in life, taking it by force often, or by deceit, or by corruption. And it's a trial for us. Another one of those trials that we suffer that I didn't mention earlier is seeing the wicked prosper. What does that have to do with this section on judgment? Well, if we read down further in the psalm, verse 16 and 17 He goes on from verse 3 all the way down to verse 15, talking about all the good the wicked have and how it aggravated him. In verse 16, he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I think uh, the author Solomon in his Ecclesiastes book says pretty much the same thing. It's a wearisome task until, verse 17, I went to the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. The comfort we get from this, the understanding we get from this, is that judgment will come. And that one of the purposes of our suffering is in that judgment. We see in reading the final judgment of God's great hatred for sin and the consequence that will become. Every sin will be judged and every sin will be paid in full even though it takes eternity of torment in hell, it will be covered. God cannot accept somebody whose sins have not been paid in full. God says, I will not acquit the wicked, Exodus 23, 7. They will not be acquitted. They will not be passed over. Now, I remember being taught that in Christianity, God loves you and, does, and it decides to ignore your sins. To say, oh, that's okay and pat you on the head. You're my child, I'll accept you just as you are. No, he doesn't accept us just as we are. He accepts us after we've had our sins paid for by the blood of Christ. It's not something we earn, but it's also not something that God ignores, our sin. And in our passage, he says the judgment begins with the Christians. And I think it begins in the here and now with us. Hebrews 12, 6, we looked at this a number of times. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Part of our purification process, part of those fiery trials, is his chastisement, his judgment upon our sin and desire to see us reject it, turn from it, repent of it, and live a better life 
to become more pure. In other words, to be refined. And so this idea of judgment on the believer goes back to the idea of fiery refinement in, in our walk with Christ. And so it begins with us here in this world with our refining as we turn more and more from our sin, more and more to God. We have faith in him. We trust in his, his death for us. And it says, interestingly, and perhaps a little bit of a struggle for us, that we are barely saved. The believer is said to be scarcely saved. Why? Well, because no matter how much refinement they undergo, they're not perfect, and God requires us to be perfect. No matter how much refinement we, we get, even if we theoretically became perfect, we still have all the sins we committed beforehand that have to be paid for. So we can't be saved by ourselves, no matter how hard we work, no matter how good we become. And so we are scarcely saved in that sense, because we are fully saved by the blood of Christ. You know, <clears throat> Romans 4 teaches us this. It says, And the one who does not work, meaning work to earn his salvation, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David speaks also of the blessing, the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, meaning the righteousness of Christ, instead of our own. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It is not counted against us because Jesus paid it all on the cross. And though he died, he raised again, proving that it was paid in full on the cross. And so, yes, we are scarcely saved because it is not from us. We're coming up short as we reach. But we are saved because Christ has saved us. Now, it goes on in that verse to remind us that the wicked will also be judged. If we can barely be saved, what will happen to the ungodly and the sinner? Where will they appear? Well, they won't appear with us in heaven. They will appear judged and given the consequence, the justice that they deserve. So sometimes this trial that we're talking about comes to us because of sin because we are to be refined from our sins. And so the trial is part of the refining process. The fiery trial is the misery, the suffering that we have. But that suffering should not come about because of our sins. In another sense, from the world. In other words, verse 15, he says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, an evildoer, or as a meddler. You know, we are to be refined from our sins, suffering for them, but not suffering persecution because we're a sinner, because that's not any use for us. There's no blessing to come from being a murderer and being put to death, or being a thief and made to pay back, or being a thief and being flogged, or even being an evildoer. In other words, all the sins that people would understand and recognize, if you commit them, you're going to suffer for them. You're going to go to jail. You're going to be fined. You're going to be hated. That is not what he's talking about with suffering. That might be part of our refining. The world brings us to repentance for our sins. But he says, let not your suffering be because of those things. 
aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Be dependent on no one. First Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. You know, we are not also to be meddlers and in trouble for meddling. The meddler is somebody who takes wants to be the supervisor of other people's issues and problems that they have no right to be involved with. They're interfering, they're meddling. And you will suffer for that. People will hate you. Uh, the man who interposes often gets a bloody nose. As the old saying goes, Proverbs has many more sayings on that matter. You know, in a, trying to fix the world, trying to fix everybody's problems, is not what we're called to do. Often the church gets involved in that, trying to help everybody and guide them to a better life. But what we're called to do is give them the gospel, have their lives transformed, and then, then guide them. You cannot guide the ungodly anywhere because they will not go to the destination you're taking them to heaven it's not in them and when we start meddling in other people's affairs that way we're just creating trouble for ourselves and it says you know the trials if they're coming from that they're not they're not good trials yeah they they may help you refine as you learn not to do foolish things and peter has talked about this before that you know suffering for doing evil for being obnoxious, for causing trouble, is not glorifying to God, and it is not worthy of a reward for you. So we should be careful to remember that point here, that we should not suffer for our sins. We should suffer for the name of Christ, suffer for the glory of Christ, suffer for those refinements that can be made in our life. But since these trials, they are normal, and they have a purpose, we then need to have a right mind towards them. That right mind towards them we see throughout this passage that we've just covered. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't be... I don't know what to do anymore. I've got a problem. No, the problems are going to come. I know what to do. I learned a long time ago as a Christian what to do. Now, how many percent of the time when I face a problem do I do it? Not a hundred yet. But what is the solution? Trial comes upon you. Okay, this trial. God says I'll have many trials in my life. Step one, pray. <laughs> Immediately before I get overwhelmed, before I get frustrated, before I get angry. I've shared before managing a little apartment complex while I was in seminary. You know, having the welfare entitlement types come down screaming and cursing because they'd had a bad day and I represented authority to them. So they'd pound on my door really loud until I put my work aside and my Bible down and got up and went outside. They'd call me every dirty word they ever heard, curse me a thousand times over, and to avoid punching them in the face, the first thing you do is start praying. But that works with everything. You know, ask the Lord for strength. Ask the Lord for blessing. Ask the Lord for understanding what to do before we get frustrated, before we stumble ourselves. And 
you know, when I was first diagnosed with Parkinson's, I didn't really understand the disease, and I was quite like, oh no, what happens? So as I'm driving home from the appointment, I prayed the whole way. And then I got on the internet and watched a couple of videos, and I'm like, oh, it's not so bad. I was thinking it was going to be a quick, and, quick, painful, horrible death. <laughs> but it's like, no, I won't be hiking in the woods anymore, but life goes on. And I can continue to serve and glorify God. So start with prayer. Look, become calm. Seek understanding. Seek how to glorify God in the situation. Because that's what we're called to do. So first, we shouldn't be surprised. And second, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You know, we rejoice in that We are suffering for the name of Christ. We are suffering with him. That means we are with him. You know, if we're suffering because of his name and because of him, in the way we live our life for him, not because of our sin and our obnoxiousness and our belligerence and our troublemaking, but because we are glorifying God with our life, then we know that we are with him. He gives us confidence. God does not say, and if you do not know me, the world will persecute you. He says, if you know me, if you're called according to my name, if you're one of us, one one with him, then you can have that confidence and you can have joy. This trial shows that I'm with God. I'm being refined by God. He loves me enough that he wants to improve me. He loves me enough that he wants to prepare me for heaven. He loves me enough that he's joined me to Christ. And so we can have joy in sharing his suffering because that really gives us the understanding that we are disciples. And again, as I've been saying, we have to be careful not to be self-deceived that you know we're getting in people's face and being nasty and obnoxious and meddlesome and claiming that's Christ. We're going to get persecuted for being an idiot. That's not what we're talking about, but for being joined to Christ. And he says also, verse 16, that we should not be ashamed. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Glorify God in that name. We're suffering as he did, his son did. We're suffering as the church does. We're suffering as his people. We should have joy in that and not be ashamed, but be able to stand proud and say, yes, because I love God, because I live my life according to his principles, I am suffering in this manner. Or because I love God and know God, he is purifying me and refining me in this illness, in this problem, in this difficulty. And I am not ashamed of the difficulty. I am glorifying God in it. then we should remember that Peter speaks often of the persecution that comes from the wicked, even in this passage, their hatred for us because we belong to Christ. Remember what God says in Isaiah 66, 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake has said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. You know, there are many who think they serve God in persecuting the Christians. 
Oh, God is love and you hate sin, therefore, you know, we should persecute you. You, you say that homosexuals must repent, that idolatry is bad, that, that greed is idolatry, that all forms of sexual immorality are sin. Well, you're a hate monger and in the name of Christ, we shall drive you out. Uh, we hear that today in the church. God wants people to be rich and happy and wants you to share all of your hard work with those who don't want to work. And God wants to love everybody equally, regardless of whether they belong to him or whether they sin or live a life for him. Those things we hear in the church and they persecute the believer for saying that's not what the word says. Well, Isaiah says, well, God says in Isaiah, it'll be them who's put to shame. You know, right now, sometimes we suffer and have shame for Christ, but it will be turned back on them. And finally, in verses 18 and 19 of our text, we're encouraged to never give up. We may be scarcely saved, but we suffer according to God's will and we entrust our souls to a faithful creator doing good. Reminds me of Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know, we should never give up. That's what Job was told by his wife. Give up. Curse God and die. It's too much. End it. Find a better God. But we, the believers, should never give up. We know what is coming. We know the judgment to come. He talks about it in these verses 18 and 19. We know that in that judgment we will be acquitted because Christ paid for our sins. And we will go to heaven and we will receive all the bliss and all the promises and all the wonders that are ours. And we will see justice. Those who have harmed us will be treated if they have not been covered by the blood of Christ, their sins will be treated justly. And so we must persevere to the very end. <coughs> and that is what we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 to 39. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. And we are called to persevere to the end. Sometimes we're making great strides forward in our Christian life, seeing great improvement. And other times we are struggling greatly, be it with our own sin or with the trials that we face. But perseverance is called for. Sometimes we persevere curled up in a ball on the ground. Other times we persevere by continuing to run the race, but persevere to the end. That is what he has called us to do. And so we should not be surprised by these trials that come upon us. They're going to refine us. They show our place with Christ, with God. They glorify him. They have a purpose. God has a plan.
Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word contains many encouragements to us to endure our suffering, that it is not proof, as some have told us, of your hatred for us, but it is proof of your love for us, that if we belong to you, you're refining us, you're joining us to your Son, you're allowing us to share in his ministry and his suffering as we become closer to him and to you. And as we strive towards that day, towards that reward, pray that you, Lord, would be with us, that you would give us the strength we need, the hope we need, the joy we need, that we will not be surprised by these fiery trials, but we will endure them to the end, giving you glory every step of the way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.